This is not responsible decision making. The black snake that's being proposed here, its head, its brain is in Texas, where this corporation is, but its heart lies in Washington, D.C. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Tom Hartman Program, a documentary by the Levitate Media Group, Democracy Now!, The Young Turks, The Bradcast, and The Green News Report. You know, we talk about minorities in the United States, and, and typically that's uh, code for African Americans and Latinos more more marginally, uh, and I don't mean that in a negative sense. I mean just you know uh, numerically, uh, it, that also includes Asian Americans, and um, in some cases, women are referred to as minorities. I think that that has, by and large, changed. Uh, but there's, there's been, and, and Hispanics, but there's been very little discussion of Native Americans. And Native Americans are not only, you know, a minority in North America right now, but they are, they were the original people here. We stole this country from them. We being white Europeans stole this country from Native Americans. And in the process of stealing the country, we slaughtered, we, we robbed, we raped, we pillaged. We, I mean, the, 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 the devastation in the name of God and manifest destiny and just plain old theft and greed of uh, tribe after tribe after tribe across this country. One of the, one of the really amazing things to do when you come to Washington, D.C. To, to visit this, this beautiful city, the District of the Goddess, is to go to the Native American Museum. And you will get it. This country was fully occupied. Fully occupied. Coast to coast, top to bottom. There wasn't a spot, a habitable spot anyway, where you didn't have Native American communities. Now, they might have had in the more hostile areas like uh, the desert of Nevada. Nevada, um, You had the Shoshone, where your population density was, you know, 100 people per square mile. Whereas in, in uh, what's now New Orleans, you had, you know, a city, right? The mound builders in the, in the southeast, uh, very fancy, large, sophisticated cities. The, you know, the, the, so we had, I mean, there was this whole, this extraordinary diversity in Native American communities across the United States. But they were stable. They were solid. They'd been here for 10 to 30,000, 10 to 23,000 years. And we, we, we made every attempt to destroy their culture, to outlaw their languages, to murder them, to poison them, to give them infected blankets with smallpox. We, we, we killed off millions of them with influenza and, and syphilis and, and diseases that we brought with us from Europe. And now there is a, uh, a, a Lakota prophecy that is being fulfilled that is scaring the living bejesus out of Lakota people in South Dakota. 
And the, I, I don't know if you saw the story in The Guardian. I've been, I've been reading The Guardian more and more uh, as opposed to other newspapers because it just does such a great job of both covering American news. They, they have a very, in fact, more, more American. The Guardian's a British-owned newspaper, but more Americans read The Guardian than Brits. It's, it's uh, you know, it's one of many newspapers in Britain. It's one of the only in the United States, I think, that actually is not somebody's mouthpiece, you know. And, and they, they have this extraordinary story at the, theguardian.com titled, We Are the Protectors, Not Protesters, Why I'm Fighting the North Dakota Pipeline. And I just wanted to share with you some of this. This is from Hyuskin American Horse is his name. Uh, he lives in Cannonball, North Dakota. And here's what he has to say. This is important stuff. Our elders have told us that, that if the Zuzeska sape, also known as the black snake, comes across our land, our world will end. Zuzeska has come in the form of the Dakota Access Pipeline, and so I must fight it. I am Sikangu Ogallala Lakota, born in Rosebud, South Dakota, and writing from the front line of the movement against the pipeline in Cannonball. I have been holding this ground with my Standing Rock Sioux tribe relatives since the spring. I am defending the land and water of my people as my ancestors did before me. The $3.8 billion pipeline project is proposed to carry approximately 470,000 barrels a day of fracked oil from the Bakken oil fields, 1,172 miles through the country's heartland to Illinois. The pipeline will cross the confluence of the Cannonball and Missouri rivers, where it threatens to contaminate our primary source of drinking water and damage the bordering indigenous burial grounds, historic villages, and Sundance sites that surround the area in all directions. Those sites that were not desecrated when the area was flooded in 1948 by the construction of the Ohay Dam are now in danger again. This week, writes Ayuskan American Horse in The Guardian, and I strongly recommend you check this article out. This week, I have witnessed pipeline construction tear its way toward the water of the Missouri River, which flow into the Mississippi, threatening to pollute the aquifer that carries drinking water to 10 million people. I have seen where their machines clawed through the earth that once held my relatives' villages. I have watched law enforcement officials protect the oil industry by dragging away my indigenous brothers and sisters who stood up for our people. The fact that Energy Transfer Partners, the company behind the pipeline, would use the word Dakota, which in our language means friend or ally, in the name of its project is disrespectful. This pipeline is a direct threat to all Dakota, Lakota, and Nakota people, especially our future generations. And we are not the only ones. We know that burning this oil is changing our climate, and indigenous people all over the world are bearing the brunt of the, cat of the catastrophes that it causes. He goes on to say, uh, the, the, this pipeline poses strikingly similar problems to those uh, posed by the now-defeated Keystone XL. It's received only a fraction of the attention from mainstream media and big environmental groups. On July 26, we were surprised to learn that the, North, that the North Dakota permits were approved by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to run the pipeline within a half mile of our reservation. My tribal leaders have said that this was done without consulting tribal governments 
and without a meaningful study of the impacts that it will have. This is a violation of federal law and, more importantly, of our treaties with the U.S. government, the supreme law of the land. And you will note the Constitution does say that treaties actually supersede laws. Uh, he talks about how this historic battle is bringing together various tribes, the Ojibwa relatives from the Great Lakes. He says relatives from Crow Key, Creek, Cheyenne River, Yankton, as well as Dine and Ponca relatives from the south, uh, the Hankpaka Papa, the tribal brand of a band of Standing Rock, are now joined by the Ogallala from Pine Ridge. So Native Americans from all over the country, and my apologies for mangling names. He said, to have all this unity of tribes standing together in solidarity before my eyes is a beautiful sight. Our tribes now live together, eat together, and pray together on the front lines. We are not protesters. We are protectors. We are peacefully defending our land and our ways of life. We are standing together in prayer and fighting for what is right. We are making history here. We invite you to stand with us in defiance of the black snake. Now, isn't this amazing that these people have a prophecy? The, 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 the Lakota people have a prophecy that when a giant black snake goes across their land, which is what this pipeline is, that our world will end. Long ago, the strangers came across the waters. Oh, so fragile and so So we're right outside of the checkpoint on Highway 1806 on our way to Standing Rock Indian Reservation. It's outside of the town of Cannonball, and it's right along the Missouri River. Now, as you're all aware, there's been a controversy heating up with the Dakota Access Pipeline wanting to come through and go right underneath the Missouri River within a mile. So today we're going to find out what the tribe is doing to stop this pipeline from going through. We're here at the start of the controversy of the Dakota Access Pipeline. The Native American tribes have been protesting and fighting this pipeline for years, but it finally came to a head when they broke ground right here. Protesters stood in front of the earth movers and would not let them continue. In the following events, lawsuits have been filed, gag orders have been filed, and there's been heated controversy. One thing that's really important about this story is it's about our resources, our land and our water. And it's taken the indigenous people to be the people that stand up to the U.S. government, the corporations, and the fossil fuel companies. We have dozens and dozens of tribes from all over the nation gathered at Standing Rock. They're having ceremony, they're having prayers, and they're also having legal strategization for what can be done to stop this pipeline. 
My name is Patricia Hamill. I live in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm an attorney in private practice there, and I'm here to assist people with um, interviewing witnesses, collecting information, uh, defending people who are arrested, uh, trying to help in any way I can with respect to the lawsuits that are being filed. Wisconsin has the largest tar sands pipeline in the United States running from northwest to southeast. And in 2010, there was a leak that went on for 17 hours because they couldn't discover it until some local person saw it and uh, spilled uh, hundreds of thousands of barrels of tar sands oil into the Kalamazoo River. Uh, the last five years, they've been trying to clean it up, fighting with their insurance company, fighting with the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, Enbridge says it's now cleaned up, but uh, I was there a year ago. There was a water walk down to the Kalamazoo River, and after a number of people had walked there, you could see the oil on the banks of the river. So it has not been cleaned up. One of the things that the tribe elders have made clear since we've been here is this is not a protest. This is not about hostility. This is about protecting the land. And over and over and over again in the camp, they're repeating the message that we're peaceful. We're doing this through peaceful means. This is not responsible decision making. The black snake that's being proposed here, its head, its brain is in Texas where this corporation is, but its heart lies in Washington, D.C by the lawmakers, the legislators, the court, the policymakers, who are enabling actions and irresponsible decisions to manifest and materialize before our eyes. Have they ever asked themselves who they are and where they come from? Because if they did, they would know and realize, as we do, that if we continue down this pathway with these kind of decisions, that the answers that we have come to ourselves, knowing who we are and where we come from, knowing what it is to have a relationship with the land, with the water, with the elements, and with Tumanmatla, our creator. We come to love our surroundings. We come to know the interaction that we indeed are related to all things. And in that love and that acknowledgement of knowing that you are related to all things, you come to appreciate in the beauty, that creation that our creator has put down for us. And in that appreciation, you come to understand the benefit and the importance that our future generations are at least able to experience what we have at this time. Hello Dakota Nation! Hello Lakota Nation! President Obama, where are you? You come to dance amongst these people here. You showed yourself to this land here in relationship with the Standing Rock people. You had their babies in your arms and you shook their hands of these people. Where are you at this time to stand up behind the words that you had expressed to these people here? Please, do whatever is within your power, your executive authority, to stand for this land, for this water, and for this air, and that indeed this proposed black snake will not materialize. This is a peaceful gathering. It is a prayerful gathering. This is not protesters, but indeed truly protectors who are expressing what is in the well-being of all. What is happening here impacts millions of people that live along the river and it goes from here through many states down into the Gulf of Mexico is that if this pipe goes through and if it breaks it will devastate the entire region all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico 
every person needs to recognize and realize that, that this is not just our native people fighting to stop the pipeline from going across the river. It's not just about us. Water has been my life struggle. As an elder of the Standing Rock Nation and the land of Tatanka Iotaka, Sitting Bull, we are his people. And we will, there will be no pipeline. There will be no oil going to the homeland. These pipelines run underground, so people don't often discover that they're leaking until they've already leaked quite a bit. What happened in Kalamazoo is that um, volatile chemicals escaped into the air uh, when the pipeline was spilling and it made many people sick. The company ended up buying out a lot of people's property around the spill site. And as I said, you know, they still have not cleaned it up. So um, millions of people get their drinking water from the Missouri River. Um, I believe the city of Omaha gets its drinking water from the Missouri River. And all those people could be affected. This was supposed to go in front of a judge in Washington, D.C., to whether he was going to grant. He put a stay on it because he wanted more information. And now he's going, he has to rule by September 8th, I believe. And if he approves this to go across the river, all hell's going to break loose. And they know it. as we continue our coverage of the standoff at Standing Rock. And the governor, you know what I feel like telling the governor is that, you know, you are not George Wallace and this is not Alabama, you know? This is, this is 2016 and you don't get to treat Indians like you have for those last hundred years, we're done, you know? It'll be interesting times. That was Winona LaDuke, longtime Native American activist who had set up her teepee in the Red Warrior camp uh, in North Dakota Saturday morning. Well, as the video of Saturday's action went viral, people immediately began comparing the dog attacks at Standing Rock to the violent crackdown against civil rights in Birmingham in 1965 in Birmingham, Alabama. For more on the dog attacks at Saturday protests, we're joined by Johnny Joyce. She's an expert in law enforcement canine handling with more than 25 years' experience. She's head of the consulting firm Johnny Joyce Seminars International in South Dakota. Johnny, welcome to Democracy Now! We just played the video of dogs attacking um, the Native Americans, hundreds of people who had come up on the site to protect their land, the tribal burial ground and the sacred sites. The dogs that the security at times unleashed that bit the horses, that bit the people. One dog, the mouth and nose of the dog were dripping with blood. As you took a look at this video, what could you tell us about what these dogs were trained to do? Well, Amy, first of all, thank you for having me. And I'm very happy that Democracy Now! was there in order to get independent video 
in reference to what happened with the dogs. Uh, your question is, what were the dogs trained to do? Um, what the dogs were not trained to do uh, was to be professional uh, security dogs or professional law enforcement dogs. Um, what I witnessed on the video was absolutely horrific and a chaotic scene. It appeared that the handlers were not trained properly in order to manage a dog that has been trained in some type of controlled aggression. And basically what it looked like was a bunch of alligators at the end of leashes being put on uh, the Native Americans there that are protesting. Um, uh, it absolutely was an egregious use of canines. Can you explain what bite work is? Um, yes, bite work is a is a terminology that is used in the working dog industry to where a canine is taught to bite uh, a human being. And in this process, in the training process, uh, the human being is protected by gear. Um, law enforcement uh, will utilize type of training in order to uh, protect handlers and deal with criminals um, that need to be brought under control with this uh, level of force. Uh, what happened there uh, at the protest, in my opinion, was an excessive use of force by civilians that obviously did not have proper training in the utilization of dogs that are trained to bite humans. We interviewed one person after another who were bitten by dogs. And uh, as one of the security um, was holding the dog, whose mouth and nose were dripping with blood, I said to her, your dog is biting protesters. She simply moved down the line, and the dog moved on to attack more of the Native Americans who were there. Yeah, and that particular part of the video, the female handler uh, with uh, the black dog um, moved away from you. And, and this is of uh, a particular concern uh, to me in reference to this, because she moved down the line. And then there were about six protesters that were oh, approximately 15 feet in front of her. And without the protesters moving forward or making any aggressive act towards her, she pushed her dog into the crowd. And you can see on the video that the dog had enough sense not to go in the crowd. He, the dog actually backed up, and then she corrected the dog and pulled the dog into the crowd. And this is especially concerning. Um, in reference to this application of the use of force. And it, it certainly provides evidence that these people were improperly trained.
there's been a real media blackout here for so long. And now that there is media here, I've seen personally stories that are not factual, mm -hmm. that are completely kind of like fed from police um, and just not, <laughs> I've seen it in the mainstream media and I've seen it in the local media here. And I know you've been frustrated. Can you kind of talk about the uh, twisted uh, narrative that's kind of come out here? Yeah, um, definitely. We, my first, I've been here since August uh, 12th with my family. And on the first action on August 15th, five of us women hopped the fence and we were able to not get arrested. Uh, the next day, a woman who is actually here today with a camera uh, from KX News interviewed me and followed me around with her cameraman and uh, asked me what happened. I reported it to her, let her know. I never saw it. It was the truth, though. It was everything that happened. Instead, they went for the larger things that were more disruptive, like the horses barging in and being unlawful protesters and... You know, we weren't being unlawful protesters. If anybody's being unlawful, it's the government. They're on treaty land. Not only that, they're on land. This, we are the land. How can they not understand that? And to have media be here and express a lie to create fear in all the people in all this nation in this whole country to make us once again look like we're the evil people when we stand here just like this. With nothing in our hand. If we have anything, it's sage, a staff, or tobacco ties. Yet we're the violent people because we can threaten with our voice and we can use the sounds of our voice and the beats in our heart to scare them. And they report the scared part on a one-sided ticket. Here's something for them. We got attacked the other day in a peaceful manner. We did not hit them physically, we did not touch them physically, we did not have any ammo, no weapons, nothing of any kind, no lethal weapons, they did. Yeah, the dog did it, you know, look at this. Yeah. Ma'am, your dog just bit this protester. Are you telling the dogs to bite the protester? It wasn't until I got bit on my chest, and oh, I'll show it, and that is a that is a bite from a dog. I don't care. Everybody can see it. Because to me, that's a flesh offering off of a Sundance. To me, that's nothing. Because I was in prayer. And then they spin a story saying that the dogs were injured. I'm a mother. And I stood there unarmed, yelling at them. And they smugly looked at us. And they smiled every time. The dog lunged at us. It takes a lot of strength and a lot of prayer to actually stand there and still yell and stand your ground without having to take her head and want to put it by that dog's face just to show her what it feels like to be intimidated and see if she's a real warrior. To see if she's a real warrior. If she got bit, she, ran for, she would run for the hills. I know she would. And I saw, a, I saw a CBS article, headline was, uh, police accused of, uh, you know, unleashing dogs. 
there was no there's, there's no accused we actually have video uh -huh. of the dogs biting uh protectors mm -hmm. i didn't see protectors with guns i didn't see protectors doing uh punching I amy goodman amy goodman you are a savior and i'm gonna say that to you right now you did an awesome coverage of the real stuff that is happening here important factual news for democracy now lila wolfie latanka amy goodman honest and she interviewed me i was too much in a heat of fury i apologize for that too <laughs> i'm so sorry uh, she's a friend of the young turks i want to ask you um you have been down here for weeks you've you've seen no attention and now plenty of attention I watched it all fold i watched it all unfold i watched people come i've seen beautiful dances beautiful people from all different nations hearing their stories hearing how, why they're here hearing all from the elderly we we watched it all unfold you know and we watched the media we knew who after a while you know i was a very trustful person anybody who knows me anyone back home whether it been anywhere at all. Anybody who knows me knows that I am a nice person. I go around in a peaceful way. They know that I am. It's only when I'm, you know, I feel like I have to protect myself or protect people behind me or even my son where I get heated. And it, how, to see the people here. I think most people, if they're uh, burial grounds and land were being attacked, would probably get pretty heated. I wanted to ask you, um, you know, you look at, uh, obviously, the water is the biggest thing uh, you need it to live. But it's also, it seems like there's a lack of regard just for uh, culture and uh, tribes history and their rights. Uh, that is the history of America. Um, and now that hasn't changed. And most people watching don't think about that actively, but we're thinking about it now. What do you want people to know, uh, not just about the current fight, but the bigger picture of what, what your people are up against? We're human, man. We are human. We are programmed to go around a systematic routine on a daily basis to, stand, to work for the government, to work for the man. We are human. They forget that we are human. They forget that we're land. We are the land. Why can't we go about our lives without having to worry about money, without having to worry about oil? The climate, look at it. There was an article I read yesterday with three hurricanes in the Pacific. You know, you got earthquakes going on. You got climate change all around you. You know, Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868 gave us this land gave it by the Missouri, gave it to all of our nation, and they broke it several times. The Black Hills belong to the Lakota, and they rape it every day. I lived out in the Black Hills, and recently I gave up everything. I don't have a job no more because I gave it up in the beginning of August. I don't have uh, an apartment out there anymore because I gave it up for, at the beginning of August to come stand here, to come move here in a teepee and stand for my people. I used to have a spot in the Black Hills and they're ravaging it. They're ravaging those trees. And you, there's nothing, and when you sit up there alone, there's nothing I can do. And that's why I'm with my people here. We gotta voice these issues. It's more than just this, it's, more, it's about everything. Our laws, the bylaws. You know, we got women getting raped. We got children getting kidnapped. America is one of the most hated countries in the world. Can they get hip to that? Sorry. Right. <laughs> you know, they don't understand and they're blinded and I pity them, but I pray for them because hopefully one day they'll understand to put down the iPhone, 
to put down the money and the clothes and the jewelry and they stand and they look at themselves look at themselves as a whole and understand that we're human we're one with this earth this is our earth this is my mother we came from the land we need these minerals look at the crops around you and they're ravaged you know and there's weeds out here that we can live off of our animals our animals, especially what they do to the dogs, animal cruelty is horrible. Training them to be killer dogs. The shuka dog is sacred to our people. And I was able to calm one down because he knew he didn't know what he was doing and it's not the dog's fault. It's not the dog's fault. It's the people handling those dogs and programming them to be killing machines. <laughs> How did the Dallas-based Energy Transfer Partners Company receive permission from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers so quickly in the first place, with seemingly little regard to environment uh, and climate concerns? Uh, little regard to sacred tribal lands as well, and even the drinking water of the Standing Rock Sioux tribe. Well, it was a little something known as Nationwide Permit 12. That regulatory trick, uh, essentially, was also used last year to get quick approval for the southern leg of the Keystone XL pipeline. The northern part, you'll remember, which would have crossed the U.S.-Canadian border, was eventually rejected by President Obama. Uh, who, as president, has the final say on matters concerning international borders, not so much when it comes to pipelines that do not cross international borders. Writing at the Smog blog late last week, journalist Steve Horn wrote, In the two months leading up to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers' decision to issue to the Dakota Access Pipeline Project an allotment of nationwide 12 permits, a de facto fast-track federal authorization of the project, an army of oil industry players submitted comments to the Corps to ensure that fast-track authority remains in place going forward. This fast-track permitting process is used to bypass more rigorous environmental and public review for major pipeline infrastructure projects by treating them as smaller projects. So what the hell is Nationwide Permit 12, and how was the Energy Transfer Partners Company able to use it to get quick approval of the Dakota Access Pipeline? Writing at uh, at the Smog blog, uh, Steve Horn, he joins us to explain. He is a Madison, Wisconsin-based freelance investigative journalist, writer at desmogblog.com. His uh, writing has appeared in Vice News, Al Jazeera America, The Nation, Truth Dig, Progressive Magazine, Counterpunch, and many other outlets. Steve Horn, welcome back to the broadcast. 
Good to be back on. Thanks for having me. Uh, really great to have you here because we talked a little bit about this last week when the uh, uh, this court ruling came down that uh, at least uh, you know denied the preliminary injunction that the Standing Rock Sioux had been looking for to stop this pipeline project, and then as the Obama administration uh, announced at least a partial uh, halt to this project. But one of the things that the court case brought up was this nationwide 12 permit. What exactly is a nationwide 12 permit, and why is it that so many of these fossil fuel companies are uh, really eager to make sure this nationwide 12 permit system continues? So nationwide permit 12 is uh, before the past like three or four years was something that was generally and exclusively used for small projects, usually half an acre in size or smaller things like electricity lines, um, access roads, uh, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. small projects that were needed um, on, uh, on lands that the Army Corps of Engineers had oversight of. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really until, the, yeah, as you mentioned, that the Keystone XL debate, um, and in particular the southern leg of it, that did not cross the international border where uh, the industry saw Nationwide Permit 12 as a convenient way to split up its pipelines into many, many, many pieces. When I say, you know, some, sometimes in the case of Keystone XL South, it was like 2,000 uh, segments where they called single and complete projects. They found this loophole where they could call a huge project, many small projects, uh, and get around the much uh, more rigorous uh, National Environmental Policy Act review uh, and the Clean Water Act reviews that are inherent in every other pipeline of their size and uh, uh, the size and magnitude. So um, it, it was also another pipeline where this happened owned by Enbridge called the Flanagan South. So those two really set a precedent because there were federal court cases mm-hmm. Um, that ruled uh, in favor of the industry, and that is why uh, energy transfer partners uh, at least thought that it could get away with this and look like they were going to be able to um, because of this newest court ruling, mm-hmm. except for the fact that now it's um, under further review by the Obama administration, uh, which was an announcement made immediately after the court ruling came down. It, it, it's it. I called it, I think, a regulatory trick. It it kind of is, isn't it? I mean, because there is a, a, an appropriate process that is supposed to happen for something like this, for a pipeline like this. But when they instead break it down, what did you say? Two thousand pieces, essentially. In the case, yes. In the case of, um, I, I, it was not. I'm not sure if it was quite the case for Energy Transfer Partners Dakota mm-hmm. Access, the, the one that's. Uh, highly contested now. Mm-hmm. Um, they may, I think they only use nationwide permit 12 for, uh, the, the Missouri River crossing and Lake Oahe. Mm-hmm. But, uh, the, the way that, you know, the precedent for this was calling it, uh, thousands of single complete projects. And I could be wrong. It may have been for the entire mm-hmm. pipeline, but I know what's up for dispute right now is, of course, uh, the crossing of the Missouri River and Lake Oahe, which for sure was a nationwide permit 12. And yes, it is, yeah, as you said, it is. Um, you could call it a loophole, you could call it a fast-track trick or maneuver. It's not technically uh, illegal, you know, but it kind of defies the whole spirit of the other process that was in place. So for all intents and purposes, it's sort of like the pipeline industry's equivalent of a tax loophole where you find something that's 
not illegal, but it you know, defies the spirit of, of paying mm-hmm. your taxes and paying your, you know, and so, you know, looking at like what billionaires do, it's sort of the equivalent of that for the pipeline industry. And, and we had talked a little bit about it, I think, with you last year in, in regard to the way the uh, nationwide 12 permits were used with the Keystone XL pipeline. You write now at, at uh, Desmog blog that these permits have become a key part of President Barack Obama's climate and energy legacy. Uh, it, it, it's there, there always seem to be these contradictions with uh, the President Obama. You know, in one case, uh, it's nice to see that uh, the administration has finally come out and put a bit of a halt to this uh, project. But they were the ones to approve it in the first place. So how is it that uh, how is it that these nationwide 12 permits started being used? Was it the Obama administration who gave the approval to do it this way or was it something that the, uh, the fossil fuel industry came up with? How, how do we explain this and how do we explain the uh, the sort of, uh, you know, contradictory legacy he has here uh, when it comes to climate and projects like this? Um, yeah, so we don't know for sure what the impetus was for uh, these being used, these nationwide permit 12s. Mm-hmm. We know that the first one was the Keystone XL, Southern Lag. We know that the second one was Enbridge's Flanagan South. We know that it was used again in another uh, pipeline uh, in the Pennsylvania area um, that was challenged uh, in the Delaware Riverkeeper, the first case. That was actually the first time that a nationwide permit 12 was defeated because of this whole thing that we've been talking about with uh, quote-unquote segmentation of pipelines. It was ruled to be illegal to do that in defiance of the National Environmental Policy Act. So we know that it's been used several times in the past several years. What we don't know is if this was a industry uh, initiative where they leaned on the Army Corps of Engineers and, and FERC in the other case to do something like this. It's not entirely clear because there's never been a Freedom of Information Act done, um, so we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. What we do know um, from other documents that I wrote about is that industry certainly supports this. Um, there was recently, as you know, right before the whole thing blew up with the Dakota Access Pipeline, over the summer, there were comments uh, you know, opened up by the Army Corps of Engineers to for citizens and other interest groups to weigh in uh, on what they thought about the future, you know, the present and future of Nationwide Permit 12. Yeah, and the industry was very heavily involved in submitting comments, whether it was the American Petroleum Institute, whether it was the Domestic Energy Producers Association, whether it was uh, you know, uh, several other interest groups for the industry, all weighed in in favor of Nationwide Permit 12. So it wouldn't exactly be shocking if they were involved behind the scenes in the past several years pushing this on other projects and their attorneys and that sort of thing. It's just not 100, you know, we don't know because it's never been fully investigated, but we definitely know uh, because of these comments that were a little bit difficult to find online, but are up online uh, mm-hmm. the U.S. the federal government's website uh, for uh, this particular uh, nationwide permit 12 initiative uh, that the industry uh, has been advocating for the continued use going forward of nationwide permit 12. They want to take away the rightful people's choice. They want to take away our rebellious voice. Only we can stop them through force and unity. We will be victorious as long as we are free. Take that old 
pipeline Shove it straight up your ass Only the rich want it Cause they need more cash Take that old pipeline Shove it straight up your ass We want clean water You capitalist trash We wanted to turn now, go sort of down the pipeline. The Dakota Access Pipeline is also facing legal resistance in Iowa. Uh, The pipeline goes from North to South Dakota, through Iowa to Illinois. Um, In Iowa, about 30 people were arrested last week in an effort to block construction. For more, we're going to Des Moines, where we're joined by Bill Hannigan, an attorney representing 15 Iowa landowners who are contesting the use of eminent domain by the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, Welcome to Democracy Now!, Bill Hannigan. Isn't the Dakota Access Pipeline a private company? Good morning. Thank you for having me. Dakota Access is absolutely a private company. It's a multi-billion dollar corporation owned by about five other multi-billion dollar corporations. So uh, how then were they, was the company able to get access to the land of the folks uh, that you are representing? I represent about 15 Iowa landowners, all of them farmers. And Dakota Access is using in Iowa the power of eminent domain. The power of eminent domain is the authority of the state to take real estate and other assets for public purposes. And Dakota Access has applied to and obtained the power of eminent domain from our Iowa Utilities Board. So they have represented to the state that they are a public pipeline that is providing a common carriage service for the benefit of Iowans and the nation, and therefore they should be entitled to use the power of eminent domain. And about that, we we very much disagree. <clears throat> Can you talk about the connection between the protests in North Dakota and what's happening to you um, downstream, if you will, from North Dakota, South Dakota, now you're in Iowa, um, those connections? Well, the, the legal arguments are different, but the, the purpose and the, the power behind Dakota Access is the same. In North Dakota, they're arguing about Native American artifacts. In Iowa, we're arguing about the application of the Constitution. And what's common between those two things is, first of all, we'd like Dakota Access to stop what they're doing until everybody gets their day in court so we can make our arguments before it's too late, before it's a moot point. Now, the commonality among it, in addition to seeking this stay, the commonality is the issue of the great economic disparity. So you've got, again, these multi-billion dollar companies who have combined this joint effort to build this pipeline across Iowa and across North Dakota and Illinois and South Dakota. And The commonality is that great economic force behind those billions of dollars pushing this through both with law firms and both with the power of politics and the money of politics to get this thing on a fast track in all of these places before Iowans and South Dakotans and North Dakotans and Native Americans have an opportunity to even get to the court to get the court to review this and say it's not fair. 
And how do you hope to prevail uh, in court, given, of course, the uh, infamous uh, Kelo decision of the Supreme Court uh, some decades back, where, in essence, uh, the court uh, allowed private interests to be able to use eminent domain in commercial, uh, uh, in commercial projects? Uh, and, and interesting, as I recall, it was the quote, liberals on the Supreme Court who backed the Kelo decision and the, quote, conservatives who opposed it. That, that's correct. And we think that even the Kelo majority, in that case, the, the so-called liberals, would apply the Kelo case and rule in our favor. And what the majority in Kelo said, and it was a bare 5-4 majority, what the majority in Kelo said is that we're going to leave it up to the states to determine what a public purpose is for the purposes of, of using the power of eminent domain. However, they also said that public purpose does not include and can't be a, a shill for a true private purpose. And so in Kelo, that was a comprehensive community redevelopment plan. And the court said that in that context where there would be some public assets, including streets and sidewalks and sewers, that they would allow there to be a using of the power of eminent domain to help repair a blighted community. And in that context, economic development was a legitimate consideration. You know, <clears throat> here in Iowa, we don't have. We don't have economic development to repair a blighted community. We've got we've got farmland that doesn't need repair. You know, when I was in North Dakota this weekend, I was speaking right. to an oil trucker um, who trucked back in oil um, uh, around the area and said it was precipitous how low the demand had gone in this last year. You could conceivably set up this pipeline. The Dakota Access Pipeline could be set up. It's built through to uh, Illinois. And the demand gets lower and lower. And they have just destroyed the sacred sites along the way. And then eventually you see the abandonment of the pipeline. We feel the same way about our farmland. See, in, in Iowa, in the Midwest, our, our strategic and, and competitive advantage is our black soil. That from, from the black soil and the earth, that's where we grow our crops. That's how we feed our families. That, that's how we fuel our cars. And so what they've done is they plow this, this trench that is 8, 10, 12 feet deep, and they put the soil out, and it rains on the soil, and they put their pipe in there, and then they put the soil back in, and it's just not the same as it was. And on top of that, there's the risk of this oil leaking into our water supply, and there's this risk of this oil leaking into the soil and making the fertility of it much less than it was before. So the idea that a Texas company can take our land for its private purpose, you know, the, the argument that Dakota Access has made that this is a somehow public purpose is that they'll take this oil off to the Gulf of Mexico through Iowa, and then they'll produce unleaded gasoline, and somehow some of that gasoline will splash its way back to Iowa. They can't prove it, they can make an estimate of it, and they can't tell us how much. But they think that is somehow our public use or public purpose. And, and what's now, the... Everyone has to remember that in, in, in December, Congress repealed the decades-old prohibition on exporting that crude oil. 
So what we think is going to happen and what has already happened with the same quality oil is it's being prepared for export. So the idea that there is a public purpose here and that we're all going to benefit from it, not only can they not prove that this oil is not coming back to Iowa, they really can't prove or demonstrate that it's even going to be for the U.S. market. So I, I think that the, the state of Iowa and the other states are being played for suckers, if you will. And this is all going to accrue to Texas profits and foreign export. Because the pipeline that goes to Illinois would then link up with a pipeline down to the Gulf. Bill Hannigan, thanks so much for being with us, attorney representing 15 Iowa landowners who are contesting the use of eminent domain by the Dakota Access Pipeline. As long as the grass grows, river flows. As long as the wind blows, that's how long will eternity. It was an extraordinary twist in the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe's lawsuit to halt construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline that threatens their sacred sites and water supplies. Within minutes after a federal judge denied the tribe's request for an injunction, the Obama administration Justice Department issued a joint statement with the Interior Department and the Army temporarily halting construction of the pipeline on federal lands pending a new review and asking the company to voluntarily halt construction within 20 miles of the disputed area and calling for an examination of the permitting process on tribal lands. On MSNBC, Jane Klebe of Bold, Nebraska, went even further, noting that the oil industry is also abusing eminent domain for private profit. There is national reform that's needed on eminent domain for private gain. We have big oil corporations that essentially are ignoring not only the sovereign rights of our native brothers and sisters, but are ignoring the property rights of farmers and ranchers. And so we have pipelines going in that aren't even for American energy independence anymore. They're essentially all for the export. Funny thing, you know, about that eminent domain, Republicans are really, really angry about it. They hate it unless it has to do with oil pipelines. Then they seem to be fine with it. And in a message of support to the Standing Rock Sioux tribe, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., president of Waterkeeper Alliance, said a key reason for these efforts to accelerate huge fossil fuel projects like the Dakota Access Pipeline is an attempt by the oil industry to lock in fossil fuel use for decades to come at the expense of renewable energy infrastructure. The carbon industry is scrambling as fast as it can to put more and more infrastructure on the books. And that's why over the past 10 years in this country, there's been 16,000 miles of gas and oil pipelines constructed and only 600 miles of transmission lines. Why? because transmission is the media of renewable energy. Kennedy points out that right now the cost of uh, renewables like wind and solar is almost at exact parity with oil and coal. And so that's what they have to do. They got to lock in these pipelines so they can then make the argument for years and years. Hey, let the oil flow. We have to pay off our investment. It's kind of obscene. Exactly.
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, tell President Obama to revoke U.S. Army Corps of Engineers permits and stop the Dakota Access Pipeline. If anyone ever tries to tell you that resistance is futile, just point them in the direction of the Standing Rock Sioux of North Dakota. As so often seems to be the case with American Indian tribes, this is another David and Goliath story. It's the Standing Rock Sioux against the financial interests of about 17 firms, which all loaned Energy Transfer Partners $2.5 billion to complete the massive Dakota Access oil pipeline. So it was more than a big moment last week when shortly after a federal judge denied the tribe's request for an injunction, the President, the Department of Justice, and the Army Corps of Engineers released a joint statement that put a temporary stop to all construction in that area. Not only that, but the statement went on to say, quote, This case has highlighted the need for a serious discussion on whether there should be nationwide reform with respect to considering tribes' views on these types of infrastructure projects. Therefore, this fall, we will invite tribes to formal government-to-government consultations." After thousands protested across the country this week, the pressure is on and the president is listening. Now is the time to double down and let Obama know that the people stand with Standing Rock and all Native tribes who have been abused, exploited, and neglected by America's government since its founding. You can submit your message to the president through 350.org. Just Google 350 Stop Dakota Access Pipeline. Their petition will be the first non-news result that comes up. You can also call the White House directly at 202-456-1111, and of course, spread the word on social media using the hashtag NoDAPL. This isn't the first pipeline battle, and sadly, it will not be the last. So make fighting for a sustainable future and the rights of frontline indigenous peoples part of your theory of change before and after this election by getting involved in the long term with organizations like 350.org or other local climate action organizations near you. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources to find upcoming Dakota Access Pipeline actions near you. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now Cause that's how we make a difference in this fickle world of change We begin today's show with major updates in the fight by Native Americans to stop the proposed $3.8 billion Dakota Access Pipeline, which would carry about 500,000 barrels of crude oil a day from the Bakken oil fields of North Dakota through South Dakota, Iowa, and into Illinois. The project has faced months of resistance from the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and members of hundreds of other tribes from across the United States and Canada who flocked to North Dakota in what's being described as the largest unification of Native American tribes in decades. In a dramatic series of moves late Friday afternoon, a federal judge rejected the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe's request for an injunction against the U.S. government over the Dakota Access Pipeline. 
Then the Army, the Department of Justice, and the Department of the Interior responded with a joint announcement that the Army Corps will not issue permits for Dakota access to drill under the Missouri River until the Army Corps reconsiders its previously issued permits. In a statement, the Department of Justice said, quote, construction of the pipeline on Army Corps land bordering or under Lake Wahe will not go forward at this time, unquote. The federal agencies also asked the Dakota Access Pipeline Company to voluntarily cease construction 20 miles east and west of Lake Wahe. The government's intervention was welcomed by thousands of Native Americans who've gathered along the Cannonball River by the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation to resist the pipeline's construction. Here are some of their reactions. Francine Garrow Hall. I'm with the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. I'm uh, Minikoju, Itazipjo, and Hunkpapa bands of the Teton Lakota. I am very grateful because in our government-to-government -government relationship, the federal government is bound by treaty law to protect our interests. And I'm glad that they stepped up to the plate today and, and did that. I think all the American people need to recognize and they need to realize that this isn't a racial deal. This is something that impacts all of us. We all, as children of God, have a right to clean water. And that's what this fight is about. It's about recognizing that Miniwichoni, water is life. And without it, we, are, we all die. And so we are protecting water for the future generations. Um, I had to be here because I wanted—it was my time to be accountable. Seven generations from now, I want my grandkids and their children to say, she stood so that we could have clean water. My name is Bill Peacott. I'm a member of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. Like everybody else, I think I'm pretty happy with the decision for them to step in. I know that maybe it's not the end of the battle, but at least today, you know, we, we celebrate a small victory. Um, you know, there are still things to be considered, and um, I, I think at least for me, it appears that they want to do things fairly. Hopefully, there'll be more consul tribal consultation, and not just with Standing Rock, but with all, all tribal nations in the future. Maybe this will show, you know, the United States and the world that um, I think Native American people are tired of being walked on, tired of being taken for granted, tired of being invisible, and uh, that we're going to stand up for ourselves. I've seen some atrocious things to me, you know. The girl that was bit in the chest was my cousin, you know. And uh, um, there were pictures on Facebook of that, and I was, I was heartbroken for her, you know. I think I can say that I'm proud of the way we've behaved and how we've acted throughout this. Florice Whitebull from Standing Rock. My father's from here, Standing Rock. I'm a student at Sitting Bull College. It's not a solid victory right now, but it's uh, just the weight, feeling that that weight that I've been carrying for the past couple months, now it's lifting and uh, 
I feel like I could breathe right now. We just heard clips today from Tom Hartman reading from an article in The Guardian that gives some background on the Black Snake prophecy. Levitate Media Group put together a short documentary on the No DAPL movement. Democracy Now! interviewed a canine expert on the use of dogs against the protectors. The Young Turks interviewed a woman bitten by a dog to get her first-hand account. On the broadcast, they discuss the regulatory loophole that allows massive pipeline projects like this one to avoid major environmental scrutiny. Democracy Now! explained why Iowa landowners are suing to stop the company behind the pipeline from invoking eminent domain. The Green News Report explained the macro perspective on why fossil fuel companies are so keen to get as much oil infrastructure built as possible. Our activism for today is to keep the pressure on Obama to follow through with his commitment to sit down with Native tribes and rethink the role they should play in approving future infrastructure projects. And finally, we just heard Democracy Now! play some of the reactions of the water protectors at Standing Rock to the news that the administration had stepped in to, at least temporarily, Halt Construction. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, love the show. It's September 6th. And just three days ago, Democracy Now! posted on their YouTube channel coverage from the protests at the Dakota Access Pipeline. And you probably heard of this, seen this, but uh, there's been pepper spray attacks against the protesters by guards, private guards, I think. I don't think they're cops or National Guard or whatever. But And dogs attack the protesters. But uh, I don't know where the National Guard or cops were to protect the civilians against this company who's committing violence on civilians. There should be a lawsuit against this company and or the agents that committed violence against these civilians. There needs to be some action taken that will set a precedent that says companies can't just hire, you know, people to strong arm protesters um, or, or anything of that nature. Um, so you see my point. I really think that companies should not be able to commit violence against those who are peacefully speaking out against acts that they see as unfit for the environment, for their culture, for any reason. Um, Anyway, all right. Thanks a lot. Keep up the good work. Bye. Hi, Jay. It's Sunny from St. Paul. And I just finished listening to episode 1041 about dying with dignity. And uh, it reminded me of the um, death of my dog a year ago when Remy was diagnosed with hermangiosarcoma, which is a terminal illness. Um, It has an indeterminate life expectancy, so anything from 16 days to a year. So when I was talking with my vet about how do I know when it's going to be the right time, he suggested I make a list of six of Remy's favorite things and um, that crossing things off of that list would help clarify things for me, which proved to be super accurate. 
And、um, by the time I crossed the very last thing off the list, it was so clear that Remy, although he might have lived another week or month or several months, it wasn't a life that he was living anymore. It certainly didn't contain any of the things that had made his life meaningful to him and our relationship meaningful to both of us. So. I was thinking about that in terms of the control that having a death with dignity law gives one about one's own death, and、uh, I wish we had a death with dignity law here in Minnesota. I think it's in the legislature now, but not likely for at least a while. Anyway,、uh, it was a great episode, and I really appreciate all the hard work you do. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at two zero two nine 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 three nine nine one. Now it is good to be back. I have returned alive from my climate ride excursion, riding from、uh, Bar Harbor, Maine, down to Boston, Massachusetts.、Uh, only two new、uh, donors to thank. A、uh, personal friend of mine, Matt, chipped in, and another anonymous donation came in. And these last two、uh, are, I think, are the ones that put us over. The seven thousand dollar mark for total the best of left team raised just over seven thousand dollars. So that's amazing. That that might be、uh, the most we've been able to raise for a single event or you know a single year. So、uh, fantastic! Thanks to everyone again who chipped in.、Uh, I'm going to give you the real brief version of、uh, this whole trip of mine. So. I, I camped for a couple of days in Acadia National Park before the ride. So, if you're familiar with Acadia, then you're familiar with the Acadia Loop.、Uh, and so, yes, I rode my bike around the loop. It was lovely. No, I did not climb Cadillac Mountain on my bike, although I considered it. I wanted to save up my strength just in case I needed it.、Uh, but I did drive to the top of the mountain to watch the sunrise、uh, along with everyone else. Now, for a while, I've been saying on the show that I'm a little worried that I wasn't quite ready for this ride, and so to give you a sense,、uh, my brother Sean,、uh, he has been riding about two to three days a week, you know, for the past several months at least, maybe years.、Um, but you know, training for this ride is was doing like two to three days a week, anywhere from twenty to one hundred miles on a given day. Now, for the last few months, I have gone on about five rides total that were thirty miles or more. Still not very long, but that was like my version of a long ride was just going over thirty miles. And then I did a handful of like really short rides and a couple of sessions on an indoor training bike stand. You know, if it was terrible weather outside, and I, you know, I wanted to get some exercise in. And on the first day of the ride, the ride director started、uh, by saying, "You know, if you're worried that you might not have trained enough for this ride, then you probably didn't." And, and that was so. That was absolutely me.、Um, but I had two secret weapons. The first is that I've done these rides before, and I know something that not everyone knows intuitively: that 
if you have a strong enough base, if you're, you know, vaguely athletic and, and have some degree of stamina, that going out on a ride like this, you can actually get stronger day after day rather than weaker. So, you know, you go out on your first day and you do like a 75 mile ride. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be weaker the next day. That can act as sort of a warm up and you can build on that. So, that, that was that was my one secret weapon. Uh, the second secret weapon, though, is drafting. And, uh, you know, I, I talked about a, a sort of cycling and wind-related analogy for privilege a few months ago about uh, riding your bike into the wind versus riding with the wind. You know, it looks like it's the same distance. It looks like it should take the same amount of time, but the wind makes an enormous difference. And drafting is like having a rich father. Uh, you know, you, you still have to pedal the bike, but uh, the vacuum created by that lead rider, you, you follow right behind a rider in front of you, it, it, it creates this sort of bubble where no wind exists, and it just feels like you have a tailwind the whole time. So with Sean's help, this is how I was going to survive this ride. He was much stronger and much more prepared for this ride. So I was going to let him lead. I was going to do a whole lot of drafting and that's how I was going to do it. Those are my two uh, secrets for getting through the whole ride without having to shuttle. You, you could take, you know, you know, put your bike on a car rack and, and get in and they would drive you along to shorten the miles a bit. I didn't want to do that if I didn't have to. So that was my strategy. So here's how it went. Day one, 78 miles or so. No problem. Just getting warmed up. Feeling great. Day two, 55 miles. Still no problem. Feeling even stronger. Uh, there was an option to do an additional 20 miles. I didn't have to shuttle on this day to do the short route. It was just hey, you've already made it to your destination. Would you like to go on a longer ride? And I was like, no, nah, that's cool. I'm going to rest up for day three. Day three, 100 miles. This is my first ever century ride. And I felt great. Absolutely fantastic. My plan is working perfectly. I'm getting stronger by the day. I mean, if I can do 100 in a day and feel good, then this thing is going to be a breeze. Day four, 75 miles. I mean, if I just did 100, then 75 has got to be nothing, right? Uh, but no, ouch, my legs feel kind of tired. My shoulders have some knots in them, like I'm being stabbed with a red-hot poker. Uh, so that's not great. Day five, only 63 miles. Last day, just got to get in. It's short day. Uh, legs are genuinely exhausted, and I've developed very mild saddle sores for the first time in my life. So I'm very uncomfortable and very tired. And I finished the ride and just sort of exist in a mental fog for the rest of the day. Uh, the first day after the ride, that was a Tuesday. I thought I might be ready to make a brand new episode, be done with the ride and come back. Uh, but no, instead, I was just finding it genuinely difficult to like climb stairs or maintain concentration on anything. And I went to bed that night feeling like I might get sick. Uh, the second day after the ride, I actually was sick, sore throat, the whole thing. The fourth day after the ride, that's today, almost fully recovered. 
Uh, stairs still make me tired. Uh, I've been working all day on today's episode and it's not going to make it out on time. <laughs> I'm, I'm lagging. So that's how it went. The short version anyways, uh, I, I was right to be worried that I hadn't trained enough, but I'm glad to have done it and to have survived it and maybe even came out stronger for it. So thanks again to everyone who supported our ride and all of the great beneficiaries. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame how we get so trained We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can see past